Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for today, Friday, May 13th, 2022. I am Noah Rothman, and with us, as always, is Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, Noah. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, Noah. And joining us on the podcast for the first time in her illustrious career, Naomi Schaefer Riley, a commentary contributor for over 20, for almost, sorry, more, yeah, more than 20 years and a senior fellow fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She is the author of No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Radical Activists Are Wrecking Young Lives, a timely work on what amounts to a conspiracy within the child welfare system to rob children of permanent and stable homes. I recommend you go out and get it. But first, listen to her on this show. Naomi, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Noah. So we've been talking off and on this week about the passing of uh, intellectual giant author, editor, and the mother of John Podhoritz, um, Midge Dechter. And we've been talking about her work uh, for uh, her expansive um, career over the course of this week, but we haven't really talked much about the ways in which she's touched on the lives of uh, those of us at Commentary. She's very obviously integral to the operations of this magazine. And <clears throat> those of us who are at her service on Wednesday, we're privileged to watch um, John deliver a particularly moving, expansive eulogy for his mother, which was basically a, um, uh, a story of her entire life uh, in a way that I found not only did I find particularly moving, but un- incredibly challenging because as I sat there listening to this and it's live on, um, on commentarymagazine.org, I highly recommend you go there and read it. It is a fantastic piece of writing. Uh, and a, a very moving tribute. And it was a profound challenge to me because how could I ever possibly manage to do that for my parents? Isn't it, how would you ever go about it? You'd have to engage in investigative journalism for you know, several weeks, I would imagine, and you know, dig up contacts and stories that you've never heard, that I've never heard. Um, it was a, a really, not only just, not only moving and affecting, but, um, uh, ex- really thorough, thorough examination of her amazing life. And Naomi joins us today, not just for her expertise um, and her you know, wit and wisdom, but also that she's had quite a bit of experience with Midge as, uh, in personal life, uh, beyond her, her contributions to intellectual life in this country, just her, her warmth and humanity. And that's a picture that our audience, I don't think, has gotten a lot of. And I think that they'd, they'd benefit from it, right? Yeah, I, I uh, Midge was, I'm lucky to count Midge as a, a friend and a mentor to me. Um, commentary, becoming the assistant editor of Commentary was actually one of my, uh, my first jobs out of college. Um, and I met Midge almost right away after that. And, uh, you know, she's a, she was a deeply kind and compassionate person who, you know, really took a lot of young people under her wing. Um, John mentioned his eulogy. I think that, you know, he would come home and tell Midge, you know, somebody else, you know, told me they had lunch with you and you changed their life. And, um, and I would say I'm probably among uh, that list of people. Um, she, and, and, you know, it, it, it was a, a personal connection, but I think it was also just, she really inspired um, all of the work that I've done. And, you know, on a personal level, kind of inspired the way I think about, you know, raising children too, uh, which is something that doesn't often get passed down from, uh, from older women to younger women sometimes. Christine, you have a, uh, a somewhat similar experience. Uh, I don't know the extent to which you spent a fair amount of time with, with Midge as a, uh, you know, in personal settings. 
but you also have talked about the ways in which she influenced you uh, as in your career, but also in your personal life. Well, she she was actually, in fact, Naomi and I have this connection. When I was um, I was in, I facilitated an interview that someone did with her when I was uh, working at In Character Magazine, which was posted by the Templeton Foundation. I think Naomi, you brokered the arrangement. Oh yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> I went to New York City, and Midge, of course, being Midge, was like, "Just come, come to my house, come to my apartment. We'll sit down, we'll talk, whatever you need." She she basically gave me half of her morning, um, and uh, I. I went there and the, the funniest part of that day, I remember, first of all, again, like I mentioned earlier, she always made you feel welcome and at home. Like there was never any awkwardness or especially if you're a young, young person starting out in a career and you're not sure how to deal with someone whose work you admire. They say never meet your heroes, but that was the opposite in the case of Midge. Like she just immediately made you feel welcome. So we sat down we were setting up all of our stuff to, to record this interview. And Norman just kept wandering in and like, what are you guys going to talk about? What's going on? What, who's this? Who's this? And it was hilarious. Cause she's like, Norman, go, this is for me. Go away, go away. And then finally she allowed, she's like, fine, you can sit over there like in the corner and listen, but you can't interrupt. And it was just the, the affection and the kind of everyday, not squabbling, but just the, the way they interacted. I was like, wow, like that's, that's the kind of marriage where you can tell it's just men. They've logged many years together and they'd been through a lot together, but they just, they had such spontaneous affection and good humor towards each other. Um, and I really, I just remember that morning so vividly. And, and of course her, her brilliance and her kindness, as, as Naomi said, um, I didn't know her as well as Naomi did, but uh, she really was for conservative women, we don't have a lot of role models that don't pretend to be superheroes, right? You have the Phyllis Schlafly, the woman of steel, who's, you know, extremely censorious about people's life choices. Midge was the opposite. She was so humane about people's decisions, and she tried to understand what motivated people, not just to judge them, as I guess how I would think about it. Naomi, yeah. when you said, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. go ahead. No, I was I was thinking about kind of her humaneness, but and and she she did judge them. I mean, you know, and, and especially in her writings, um, I was reading rereading um, liberal parents, radical children this week uh, after I heard she died. And it's uh, I really recommend it. I mean, talk about a book that holds up. It's it's quite amazing the way she talks about at parenting. And, and the book, it begins with this letter to the young, but it's really a way of kind of um, just really offering a very serious critique of the way the boomers were raised. So interestingly, it's kind of a critique actually of her own generation, of the greatest generation. It's actually this um, kind of mea culpa for everything we've done wrong that has led to this destructiveness uh, to this generation that um, you know, doesn't seem to take work seriously or family seriously, that, you know, kind of uh, writes off drug abuse is not a big deal, that, you know, uh, you know has, has promoted all these dangerous ideas about uh, the sexual revolution and, you know, relationships between men and women. And I, I just want to read you kind of the, just the first line of the last part of the introduction, because it's so, um, you know, she, she's on the one hand kind of almost taking responsibility for how bad it was, but also she was one of the few voices of sanity while it was going on. And she, so this is her talking to the boomers. She says, if you are self-regarding, this is because we refuse to stand for ourselves for both the propriety and the hard earned values of our own sense of life. And she just talks about how some combination of like kind of laziness, but also this idea that you could just 
raise children with love and nothing else, no boundaries, no discipline, no sense of right and wrong, that that was kind of the new way of thinking about raising children. And it was also kind of convenient for parents who didn't want to have to do hard things. Um, and I think it's just become obviously so much worse today than it ever was back then. Um, but this, this sense that she's both like, I'm so sorry that we did this to you, but also she's talking to these parents saying, this is horrible what you've done to them. Well, I think it raises an interesting, interesting question in regards to today. Um, so the formulation is liberal parents, radical children. What, 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 what will we get from woke parents? Um, right, because perhaps, perhaps conservative children. Well, possibly, but Naomi, this dovetails with the work in your book because progressive parenting techniques have fallen distinctly out of favor, right? I mean, the sort of idea of that you can teach children through uh, experience and love and have a very hands-off, undisciplined approach to them um, was a, a progressive ideology um, that was she was taking aim at. But today you have uh, the idea that the state has to take a much more activist role in the management of families, the proper structuring of families, where a structure at the time that uh, Midge was writing about this was deemed uh, something that was actively harmful. Well, I think that there are definite uh, kind of through lines here between what she was talking about and what parents are doing today. Like she has one line where she talks about how um, amazingly this generation, which grew up with almost more time and attention from their parents than any other generation, although in the form of kind of, I'll be your best friend, um, actually ended up being, and she uses this word, one of the most neglected generations. So on the one hand, we're spending lots of time with them and doing whatever it is they want. But on the other hand, we're kind of neglecting to provide that structure. And that is you know, what has, what has led them so down so many dangerous paths. Um, in terms of kind of the, right, the addition of the state, you know, kind of um, makes it even more dangerous in some sense that now it's, uh, it's, it's not only, I'm gonna let my kids do whatever they want. Um, now it's, you know, we have this particular structure um, that echoes that, but is not quite like that. And we want it kind of in, infused into our, uh, into our schools. We want it infused into every aspect of our culture. Um, so I don't, you know, I remember like 15 years ago, you know, to, to something you've written about, Noah, it probably was at least 15 years ago. I remember being at lunch with Midge and she started commenting to me about how our culture has become so puritanical. And it was the first time I had actually heard that uh, you know, anyone say that to me. And I just thought, that's interesting. I went, I went home and thought about it for a while, but I think she was kind of one of the first people to observe that, you know, we're kind of going back and sort of offering this, this direction, which is not the direction, of course, she favored offering children, um, but we're definitely offering much more direction in particular ways. She was also one of an earlier, uh, early critic of what became during the time of second wave feminism, which was, you know, I am woman, hear me roar. Um, an early version of third wave feminism, which is I am a terribly victimized person trapped in an environment that is not of my own making and can't get out of it. That was um, Betty Friedan, Catherine McKinnon, and it didn't have a ton of purchase uh, outside of intellectual circles. It has become the singular animating feature of modern feminist activism on the left. Uh, is that something that you found particularly, ladies? Because my my gender is deficient in this. Regard. I, I have a. I, I have. Was to that say, an animating force yeah. for you guys? She, 
well, John actually touched on this in his eulogy in a way. I mean, you could actually write a small uh, novella about how Midge uh, had no tolerance for self-pitying women in particular. And if you look at her own experience, she didn't she didn't tolerate self-pity for herself either. And I think John, John, that's why John was sort of marveling about where did she come from? Like, where did these inner reserves and this sort of strong sense of moral certitude develop? And, it, and you know, he as he turns that over in his mind and he talks about it in the eulogy, he, you know, he, he does cite the feminist stuff. She was that generation that was supposed to be like, the world is against me. The patriarchy has oppressed me. Instead, she's like, get on with it. In a way, a lot like uh, uh, another uh, leading light of that generation, Gertrude Himmelfarb, same thing. They're like, okay, yeah, here's life. It's messy. You get kids, it becomes even more complicated and you got to figure out a way to balance the work you want to do in the domestic life you have. And complaining about it is is basically wasting a lot of energy that could be used actually doing stuff. And, and that was the, it was very practical, but it was also extremely intolerant of self-pity. And I mean, that came through in a lot of her work when she wrote about women and particularly about feminism. And she was one of these founding leading lights of the Independent Women's Forum, a group that, that, that Naomi, you have an affiliation with as well. And I was one of my first jobs in Washington, a group that basically said, we're sick of all the complaining. Let's see what women really say about their lives and really want to do and what they really care about. About. And the, the the starting slogan was, you know, uh, everything's women's women's issues, right? Like women care about the same thing men do. There, there are things that we, we need to stop siloing them and treating them as, as victims of a society and start seeing them as active uh, members of their own fate. And I, I think, you know, Midge also saw kind of all of the unhappiness that feminism has wrought. I mean, that was just a theme that came through in her writing. It came through in the way she talked about families, um, this feeling that the, the pressures to conform to whatever the latest understanding of feminism was um, and the, the kind of the political messaging was making women over time gradually more unhappy. And that is something that has come out in polls and people are very puzzled by it. But I think Midge was very realistic, uh, you know, about the differences between men and women, um, you know, that a lot of women want things that men don't want and vice versa. And of, of course, you know, that's a radical thing to say these days because, you know, it just depends on how you identify, I guess. Um, but I think she was just very realistic about, um, you know, she obviously, you know, pursued the things that she wanted and the, the balance of career and family that she wanted. Um, but, you know, there was a sense that not everybody, you know, would pursue that exact same thing and that there were plenty of women who would be happy to be at home raising their children. And the feminist, you know, theology had no place for that uh, kind of idea. And Midge was just she was just very realistic about it. And I see, you know, you see some of her sensibilities in future generations like Kay Heimowitz, who is another, um, you know, commentary contributor. I even feel a little bit of it when I'm reading Caitlin Flanagan, although I have no idea whether she's read um, Midge's work either, but a kind of sense of like, what do these people actually want for their lives and what will make them happy and fulfilled is a question that feminists have never really concerned themselves with. She, um, she also, uh, touched on a, on a related topic, which is that sexual roles, both male and female, post-sexual revolution, were making people miserable um, by by making sex sort of inconsequential um, and in a sense, therefore, kind of depriving people of um, any sort of orientation in their life, uh, any sort of uh, organizing principle uh, around which you build a life. Yeah. So sort of le leaving everyone kind of aimless. Well, one of the chapters in Liberal Parents, Radical Children, which is a, a series of kind of composites and 
probably with any other writer, I'd be kind of critical of this sort of like made up composite of a person. Um, but with Midge, it's so, it rings so true. I mean, I know that sounds kind of silly, but, um, but you're, she, she has a, I think four or five different composites and one is the sexual liberationist. Um, and she describes this, this young woman growing up, oh, her parents are so thrilled with her maturity and the way she can be just friends with boys and be so at ease with the opposite sex. And isn't it so wonderful? Um, and, and as she kind of gets older, like the father sort of grows more uncomfortable with the situation, um, but not, not so much that he actually wants to speak out about it. And then, you know, the, the ending, you have this, the, the sense that the, the girl's life has been you know, very damaged in a lot of ways. And she wants to go live on a commune. And you have this sort of sad mother sitting there saying like, well, you know, I guess she's not going to have the same kind of unhappiness that I had in this kind of traditional bourgeois marriage. And, and maybe she'll be happier there. Um, and, 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 but you, you, you have this sense, like it's, it's a train wreck. You're watching a train wreck in these composites. It, it rings true what people are saying. And you think, this, these decisions that these children are making and that their parents are either letting them make or encouraging them to make um, in their attitudes towards sex, towards education, towards drugs, all of these things are so destructive for them um, as they grow into adulthood. And this is the sort of conversation that you are unfortunately going to be privy to in the workplace because feminism has become a significant issue in your work environment, uh, particularly in the last five or six years. And that's the sort of thing, if you're not well-versed in the language of the modern left, it can kill you. But you know what else can kill you in business? HR issues, wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries are not cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. It's month-to-month. -month. There are no hidden fees. You can cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary spelled b-a-m to the b-e-e dot com slash commentary uh listeners to this podcast who maybe missed it will not want to miss it there is a open letter that was published on uh national review online yesterday um which reads like a manifesto of everything that we have ever discussed or believe the principles of the sort of thing that Abe has talked about and written about um, uh, very uh, adroitly uh, regarding the revolutionary tendencies of the American left to unmake the idea of America, not to, not to uh, undermine its institutions or reform its particular conventions, but to really um, decimate the notion that the United States is a force for good uh, that has uh, done uh, remarkable things in its pursuit of uh, absolution for the sins of its birth and to make the world a more stable, more prosperous place where human flourishing and fulfillment is uh, more attainable for everyone on the planet Earth. That's the sort of stuff that we believe. 
Uh, and it's a sort of thing that's so gauche and naive that you don't really hear it articulated in polite company, certainly not in educated company. And it's a very stirring call to action. And we have with us one of the signatories of this open letter, Naomi Schaefer Riley. Um, what brought you to this, Naomi? And what is the mission of this particular open letter? And what do you think the impact has been so far, 24 hours out? So um, the letter was sent to me by uh, some editors at National Review. Um, and I just have to say the language really spoke to me. It, it speaks to the mood that this country is in right now. Um, it speaks to the fact that I think both the left and parts of the right are just losing their minds um, and that there is this kind of echo of, of previous eras of, as it says, you know, American self-doubt, um, that there is real concern about whether this uh, American project uh, was worthwhile at all. And it's, it's alarming. It's alarming to be uh, listening to that kind of rhetoric from sometimes people that I uh, that I respect and that I knew well. Um, it's alarming to listen to it from uh, even people on the other side of the aisle because I think you have this sense like, well, I you know I thought we were kind of all starting from the same point where we you know we like this country and we want to make it better and there's always room for improvement. Um, but I think that kind of uh, reasonableness and consensus um, on just the principle of America has been lost recently. Um, you know, I, I think uh, in terms of the purpose of the project, I think articulating these views uh, in a way that brings people together, um, you know, and, and, I, and I think that there is some intellectual diversity among the people who sign the letter. Um, but I think just articulating those principles hopefully will, you know, as we, as we kind of get lost in the minutia of electoral politics, um, kind of remind people of what the principles are that we should be standing for. Um, I, don't, I don't have any sense, you know, beyond kind of social media, what the impact of the letter is 24 hours out, but I suspect it's kind of a long-term project and that I hope people kind of turn back to it and ask like, what, what you know, what are the guiding things that should be helping us, uh, you know, as, as we go forward into these kind of tumultuous years, I think. There was one of the things that struck me about the letter was that, you know, we talk a lot of, when we talk about polarization, we tend to assume we're talking about political polarization, but after reading it, I thought there's kind of a moral polarization that's happened in our culture and in our society that's even more dangerous because it suggests, you know, there's kind of abolitionist thinking on the radical right and the radical left. And those are dangerous impulses when each side has sort of loud people who want to destroy but have no plan for rebuilding. Um, it's dangerous, and, and but that's a kind of polarization that we we don't think about. But it is it's about values, it's about virtues, it's about the kind of stuff that sound very old fashioned to even talk about these days. And to get back to Midge, the kind of stuff she spent her whole career uh, writing about as as things that are valuable to this democratic project. So I was really struck by, I was actually really pleased to see that sort of language used in this, because usually we talk about political polarization. This went far broader, and I think it was very useful for that. Yeah, I think the, the burn it all down temptation um, is just really strong now. It's strong on both sides, and it's really concerning. I mean, I find it, you know, in very immature in a lot of ways, but that's just sort of me getting on my high horse. I mean, I, um, you know, not to sort of just bring it back to my own work, but like I, I see this in just talking about the child welfare system with people. There's, you know, you, you have this group on the left who are like, oh, we don't need a child welfare system. We don't, we don't ever need to, you know, protect vulnerable children. Oh, kids are being abused. Kids are being neglected. Oh, 
well, if we just send those families more money and kind of eliminate it the same way we should eliminate the police, you know, everything will be fine. And you hear that tendency on the right too. I mean, you, you hear it a kind of, there's a libertarian aspect to it, which is, you know, oh, we don't, we don't need the state for anything. And, you know, a kind of a concern about uh, racial issues that enters it. Um, you see it on a, on a kind of nationalist right where they're like, oh, the government is, you know, basically just illegitimate. So we shouldn't put any faith in it. And, and the weird consensus that has developed among these burn it all down folks is really concerning, I think, for the average American. And I mean, if it the, was just an articulation of a critique of the left, a year zero mentality, this sort of idea that it's the, a sophisticated take on American history is one that emphasizes the bad and forgets the good, a narrower understanding of American history, not a more comprehensive one, it wouldn't have been particularly uh, monumental because it's the sort of critique that has been made and made again. It was targeted at the right. Uh, at least to a, to a degree that makes it relevant in the particular conversation. And, you know, the libertarian rights, certainly, but most most clearly the activist nationalist left, which does regard the, the levers of the state as a, as a way to affect its particular mission. Nationalist and, right. And nationalist right, yes, thank you. Uh, to, to affect its particular um, policy prescriptions, but also to uh, have a moral reckoning over the sins of this country, which are defined differently than how the left defines them, but are nevertheless burning, passionate, and also uh, in an in a, in a all total indictment of the history that has led us to this condition. There are, there's few limiting principles in their argument. It is an expansive critique and prosecution of uh, how American how American elites in particular, who have ro- risen through the ranks of this system, um, <clears throat> got there through uh, um, nefarious means, their gains are ill-begotten, and uh, all the spoils that they enjoy should be redistributed in a more equitable fashion. Uh, I thought the letter was terrific. And um, for me, it was really about gratitude, um, uh, which is a a moral argument. Um, Be grateful for the miracles of this country. And when you when you hear the the the, the radical critiques of on both sides of the U.S., my first thought is sort of how dare you? Um, not how dare you because you, you should not speak ill of this holy sacred thing, but you're talking how dare you from your place of comfort um, criticize not just criticize um, assault. Uh, this country that has been a haven and uh, a generational life changer for so many, countless millions. And by the way, continues to be, you know, someone asked me yesterday if, if uh, American exceptionalism is, is, is on the wane. And I said, well, it, the idea of American exceptionalism is less popular, but it's certainly no less true. And we know it's no less true because the U.S. remains the number one immigrant migrant destination um, by an exorbitant margin over any other country in the world where, to the point where, where there, we, we can't even handle the, the, the flood that's coming in. But even if it, um, even if that wasn't the case in the, in the 1960s, when there was a limit, you know, limits on immigration, was, would American exceptionalism have somehow been devalued or or, uh, you know, annulled? No, because you can't annul a history. American exceptionalism exists and will always exist because it existed. 
I think Abe is right about the gratitude part. And especially because I think many of the people, you know, who are on the nationalist right have had the luxury of getting to engage in this very long ranging intellectual exploration at all of these educational institutions, as much as we criticize, you know, universities, um, you know, have been raised in these, you know, uh, loving communities have had the experience of religious freedom of getting to change their faith as many times as they want um, <clears throat> in, in the American context. And then they're turning around and sort of pulling up the ladder and saying, you know, I got this and this is where I've landed and you all out there cannot engage in that same kind of project. And I, I find, you know, it both the, the ingratitude is both a kind of economic freedom ingratitude, which is infuriating on so many levels, but it's also an intellectual freedom and gratitude. Yeah, they are. They are the mirror image of the the sort of comfy, tenured, well off, semi celebrity, intellectual, uh, uh, progressive, radical professors uh, who, uh, you know, then turn around and and talk about what a what a horrible country th this is that um, gave them this extraordinary perch. I also liked the call to uh, small local communities saying, if we're going to rebuild this, it's not just a culture war in the major institutions, although that is important to fight. And we, if we have a minute, we should talk a bit about um, Rich Lowry has written a piece about Ron DeSantis in Florida as a, as a sort of, you know, post Trump figure on the political right, which is kind of intriguing. Um, but thinking about synagogues, churches, uh, community centers, all the things that actually a uh, hundred years ago, Amer I think a lot of Americans took for granted and sociologists have spent the last 50 years trying to understand the impact of their uh, disintegration. I mean, bowling, Putnam's bowling alone was really a lot about how these small local organically developed, you know, meeting spaces, you know, the Elks clubs, the other, the bowling league, all these kind of small uh, community organizations have fractured or disappeared. Or in some cases, I think become very politicized that and, and in that I'm thinking about a lot of the religious organizations and religious institutions so rebuilding from the ground up literally means in one's own community finding the spaces and places where if you have uh, conservative minded values you can do some good it doesn't mean you have to go to every march or, or argue on social media about every piece of federal legislation it's actually much more a local movement of repair and rebuilding that I think has been um weirdly on the right, uh, ignored, not by everyone, but by a lot of the culture war talk has been at the national level, but there are tons of battles at the local level that we should be engaged in, in fighting. I right, think so, part, of the, part of the challenge here though, and this, and this is kind of a unique challenge to the times, is that um, political identity and politics generally have, be, have become a substitute for a great many things that, that um, used to make sense uh, and benefit uh, Americans, broadly speaking, like religion, um, but also it's it's kind of become um, community uh, that has replaced the sense of actual physical community, uh, gathering places and, and um, um, you know, the, the kinds of organizations you're talking about. People now identify um, as members of a political tribe. And that's and that's and that's a very poor basis on which to build a community. So let's talk a little bit about Rich's <clears throat> op-ed in the New York Times today. Uh, Republicans need a new leader. They're looking to Florida. Uh, and it is a piece about how Ron DeSantis has become a rising star within 
the uh, conservative firmament within the Republican Party and uh, has the capacity to unite a lot of these disparate elements. As an aside, somebody had an observation that was pretty prescient or prescient, um, uh, smart uh, about how the New York Times writes about Republicans versus Democrats. When they write about Democrats, it's an imploring, beseeching, begging them to do something that is you know, more, uh, uh, something more, it, it, what they're doing or what they're not doing, just be more politically adroit. Um, when they write about Republicans, it's an anthropological study of a species that you only encounter uh, on your television or National Geographic and kind of like exploring what this, what this unique phenomenon is and what it does and what it thinks. And this is also, very- I'm sorry to interrupt, but how could they have missed an opportunity to get Florida man in the headline of that piece? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, just as a Floridian, I'm, I'm very disappointed in the times. So Rich's pieces is really sharp. Um, and there's a lot of it that I agree with, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I do listen to the, uh, to the editor's podcast on a semi-regular basis. So I think I understand where uh, Rich is coming from when it comes to DeSantis. And they talk about policy and his talks about his COVID policy, which was initially as, as strict as everybody else in the country, but loosened early and got a lot of heat for it and was subsequently vindicated. His commitment to expanding charter schools, scholarship programs, what have you, um, a commitment to conservative policy ideas. However, in general, he writes, there is no controversy that DeSantis doesn't address. Um, particularly when it comes to social issues. And again, I don't want to mischaracterize as rich, Rich's position, but I've read enough about it to, that I think I can summarize it accurately, in particular with regard to this um, brushback pitch delivered uh, at Disney regarding this particular um, special district that Disney World operates and maintains the social services, the municipal services, collects the taxes, what have you, The uh, in response to um, their uh, opposition to the quote, don't say gay bill, the um, uh, the parents' rights bill in Florida that they the legislature stripped Disney of this special status, which won't go into effect next year because everybody's going to figure out a way to make this work so that they get to keep the special status while demonstrating some deference to the powers that be and showing that they've been appropriately chided. Um, that to me, and, and Rich said that that would be valuable and beneficial as a bank shop because it would have the salutary effect of scaring the hell out of corporate America. And so they don't bow to their, the wokesters in their, in their ranks who want them to cut off their own nose for the sake of social justice issues. Um, and he seems to have gotten what he wanted. Uh, Disney seems appropriately scared. And you have a lot of other firms out there and institutions uh, that, whereas in early 2020, when you had this, you know, burst of enthusiasm around social justice issues, everybody and anybody committed to it. Um, whereas, for example, this abortion decision, um, which may or may not materialize, but has prompted a lot of the same individuals to say, well, this is an epochal event and we have to be out in the streets and corporate America and even media outlets are not tolerating it anymore. Um, and there might be an element of what Rich thought would happen as a result of this DeSantis decision, this move by Florida to affect that kind of a change. And perhaps he's happy about it. But ultimately, as policy goes, it will not have its intended effect because it will not go into effect. And likewise, you've seen quite a bit of that social warring from uh, the DeSantis-led Florida legislature, which seems just to be an arm of the executive branch in Florida at this point. Um, legislation involving, for example, criminalizing speech protections if you found yourself in a, uh, a demonstration that subsequently turned into a riot, you can be held liable for that. Now, a federal judge said that was blatantly unconstitutional, and it was. 
Um, but people don't really remember the blatantly unconstitutional element of it. They remember the fight. Likewise, the Florida, legisl Florida legislature was somehow marshaled into the mission of getting Donald Trump back on Twitter. Seems somewhat outside the remit of a state legislature, but that was what they were compelled to do by virtue of this social need to vindicate Donald Trump and any of all of his travails. And that obviously went nowhere. It was, you know, passed as a, as a me messaging measure and then uh, was also struck down. Uh, so you're seeing what I think are quite a lot of uh, theatrics from this particular wing of the party that believes itself to be so beset uh, and so insufficiently capable of meeting the measure of the moment. They talk themselves into this idea that progressives always and only ever win because they don't observe the boundaries of polite, limited government like conservatives do. So polite, limited government has to go. Um, I think they've talked themselves into a cul-de-sac there, um, which doesn't match the, the, the nature of their very much like Midge used to talk about, the, the, the victimization that they've talked themselves into, which is illusory. Um, but it also sacrifices um, your bedrock principles. And if you have no bedrock principles, you're just talking about will to power. And will to power works, works both ways, um, which is one of the reasons why principled limited government conservatism was attractive because it established ru rules for the road, not just for one side, but for both sides. That's how principles work. They are universally applicable, whether they observe them or not is one thing, but you can at least articulate an argument that makes sense from one day to the next and doesn't change based on the circumstances you're seeking to address. So while I share Rich's enthusiasm to, in many degrees, many ways, I also see a whole lot of pitfalls for a Republican Party that's guided by an ethos that doesn't seem tethered or moored to any durable principle. It is purely an expression of anxiety and irritation that can manifest in, in legislative overreach and has three consecutive, three times now from this particular individual. It's one thing on the state level in Florida. It's quite another if he was occupying the Oval Office. Yeah, well, I, I, I was going to say, sorry, go ahead. Just very quickly to Noah's point here, to quote, again, from the National Review letter. Uh, in protecting and revitalizing America, there is no substitute for the hard work of public persuasion. Uh, a governor using the levers of state power to scare corporations uh, into not having, not taking political positions, however offensive these, these positions, is not a substitute for public persuasion. Yeah, uh, I, I would just say, it seems like what DeSantis had going for him for a while now was COVID, um, which is to say his message about opening businesses and opening schools and freedom um, and, and the contrast between that and what other parts of the country were doing um, provided him with this kind of energy. And it was, it was, that was kind of the sexy story. Um, now that, you know, restrictions mostly have started to fall in the rest of the country, um, you know, it feels like he needs to find some other crusade. Um, the, 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 the anti-COVID restriction crusade was one that I think the right broadly embraced. Um, and it included both the principles of limited government um, and these other ideas about, you know, people getting to decide what they wanted from their schools and their businesses and their communities. Communities. Um, and, and now that that is not as clear a contrast with the rest of the country, although I still think like, you know, uh, his support of certain kinds of legislation is very much in line with that. Um, it's almost like he's been looking for something else to animate um, the right and, and the, the things 
he's picked are animating a particular part of the right, but I don't think that they have the same broad appeal as his anti-COVID restrictions did. This is such an important point because um, having I have lots of family still in Florida during uh, lockdown where my kids' schools were closed for more than an entire school year for like one school year plus three more months, no school, all virtual. We went to Florida to stay with my sister where her kids were going to school. They were they well, one of her kids who's a, who's a preschooler was going to school. Life was going on as normal. People did wear masks and whatnot in, in certain settings, but it was it was a very powerful message. It was also very localized because the one thing he did that was remarkable and really affects Florida is how he dealt with nursing homes because there he really did follow pretty strict protocols about who could visit. And, and there were basically lockdowns in effect at the nursing homes. And he was proven right, not just on the science and the, and the uh, public health measures he took, but on the rhetoric that he used, which was that I agree with you, Naomi, it was about freedom. It was about people being trusting the individual to make a risk assessment for his or her family based on common sense. Um, the fights he's picked since then have been, all been national culture war things, the Disney fight, all these others. And he's not as good at that, in part because he's a governor. He should stick to what he knows and what he's proven himself pretty good at. I think he's been drawn in. Part of it's actually a testament to the lack of leadership on the right right now, right? If you don't want Trump, who's left and who's actually going to stand up and talk about their local communities and, and have successfully implemented policies in their local communities during COVID that you can point to and go, this guy got it right, or this gal got it right. There are very few <laughs> options there. So I agree. I think it's, it, it's not a great path for him to steer, but there's a lot of fundraising money in it. There's a lot of national attention and there's tons of media attention in it. So that's obviously and, something he's considering. Right. And Republican voters are very much interested in, in winning cultural and social battles with the left. Uh, you, everybody on this podcast among them, obviously. Um, but they, most of them, I would hope, would imagine that they want actually lasting victories that have uh, measurable effects and don't just present a, a favorable news cycle and disappear the next day. At least that's um, my personal predilection. And the thing about the COVID restrictions, uh, the, the people who want that the most, uh, this culture warring from Ron DeSantis, are the loudest, most vocal, most visible. The thing about the opposition to COVID restrictions was that was a real silent majority, an invisible majority. It is to this day, to a certain degree, because you can still find plenty of polls suggesting that people are people really want to mask up in public, and yet none of them do. So it took a profound amount of courage and understanding uh, of the American political ethos, uh, the social compact, to be able to stand on the what seemed to be a very unpopular view, and and he got lambasted for it on a regular basis for saying that the restrictions on social and economic life were not only uh, ripping the fabric of the society apart. Obviously, the social breakdown was evident in the streets, but that would have profound and lasting social consequences that were not. Uh, merited by this particular crisis, and they should end. That was an act of real courage with real lasting consequences that created this kind of groundswell of support for this guy that lasts to this day. It wasn't his willingness to say pugilistic things on cable news. Just wasn't. But that's the sort of thing that you can get sucked into if your only feedback mechanism is the sort of thing that you encounter on social media and in cable news. Um, so that silent majority, the appeal to the silent majority, a very real one, not the one that Donald Trump used to talk about, one that exists, um, has been sort of lost. Speaking of COVID, um, let's end on a, a happier note. Uh, both of you have uh, have been privy to, unfortunately, the, the last vestiges of the uh, 
the authoritarian COVID lockdown regime that just won't go away, especially and almost only if you have very young children. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, my my children aren't even very young. I mean, all three of them are supposed to go to sleepover camp uh, at a Jewish sleepover camp this summer. I know that's a that's a that's a topic John, John loves, but they're supposed to go to sleepover camp this summer, and we just got um, a a COVID covenant from camp that we had to sign. Of course, lots of uh, Jewish values were invoked uh, in in the uh, present uh, pres- presentation of this covenant. Um, but they included the fact that uh, for seven days before our children leave for camp, they must mask um, indoors. And it didn't specify just indoors in public places. So also presumably indoors in our house. Um, they are required to, uh, if they test positive for COVID at camp, we are required to come pick them up within six hours of the positive test. Who knows, like this might be like a two o'clock in the morning sort it's of like thing. they're a bomb that must be detonated. With <laughs> yeah, a exactly. certain time. And that um, and that they uh, were required to pack them a, a KN95 mask for every day that they are at camp, just in case a greater mitigation measures are needed during the summer. My children have yet to don a KN95 mask at all, period, in the last two years. And I am going to have to now, more than two years into the pandemic, go purchase these things with the idea that anytime the, the camp decides, oh, th- you know, three or four kids have it, or who knows, maybe everyone has it, um, then the kids are going to have to start walking around outside in KN95 masks. It's, it's, it's infuriating. Well, it's also like there was just a study, I think it was in published in Nature uh, either late last week or early this week, which uh, said that has uh, estimates that more than 70 percent of America's kids have had exposure to COVID. They, they did one of these studies where they looked at antibodies, immunity, stuff like that. So many most kids have had it. And the ones who had and, and also kids, older kids are vaccinated and have to it, for many of these camps have to be vaccinated, some with boosters. Oh, that's to even attend. Yeah. Right. And it's just it's it's fascinating to me that the question I have, I mean, Naomi and I debate this in private all the time. Is this driven by insane bureaucrats who want to exercise their power or is it driven by um, parental fear and anxiety that the that the camp directors are then responding to by saying, oh, look, we're going to do everything to make sure your kids are safe. Don't worry. So that there's a weird feedback loop with the covid safetyism now where the reality is just ignored in order to cater to the anxiety. But it's not clear. I think in some ways, at least in my kids experience with school, the administrators get sucked in and don't know how to break the feedback loop. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's a that's I think a good question and I think, you know, at least a couple of years into the pandemic, a lot of parents who were probably part of that silent majority um, became much more vocal about these restrictions. And but it's, it just became hard to tell. Like, is it just a squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of thing? Um, and and how do you you know how do you ever change these institutions? Or is it just you know you got to vote with your feet and say, okay, fine, my kids are going to go to school and go to camp in a red state because this is ridiculous. So you're saying you want to burn it all down. You've convinced yourself that it's necessary to just take a torch to the whole thing, start over. (laughs) She's just going to vote with her feet like a good American consumer. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. I mean, I, I, you know, you, you, the, the process is so not transparent that I think what happens is you, you feel like you've lost the ability to influence the outcome of these things. And then you, you have to say, and, and with camps, obviously we have a lot of choice. It's not like it has to be this one thing. Although when your child's been going to the same camp for like six or seven years, you're like, oh my God. God, am I really going to, you know, start over? But I think a lot of parents have to ask themselves. And I do, I have heard stories, especially the camps that required boosters um, for their kids to go. A lot of parents are like, 
really? Like my kid has had COVID, they've been fully vaccinated and they need to have a booster in order to attend. That doesn't make any sense. And a lot of parents did say, um, you know, I've had enough. But is that enough to make it go away? There's no, there's no material conditions, no environmental conditions that are making this a necessary protocol. So if it does, if it's not tethered to like actual observable events and conditions in your environment, then what's it tethered to and what would make it ever go away? That is, that's the question that I think we have to ask because last year, I think what, what would happen is that everyone would blame someone higher up. So the camp would blame the county, the county would blame the state, the state would blame the CDC and, and everybody sort of got to pass the buck. And now none of those outside restrictions are in place. So what is driving these internal restrictions? And it, it could be just a few crazy people. And in that case, yes, yeah, you got, you got to vote for it with your feet, I guess. I mean, when you say what would make it go away, I mean, ever go away, really. I mean, don't we all have a different understanding of, of COVID and the non-existent end of COVID at this point? I mean, uh, there's no eradicating the virus for good. Um, there are going to be waves and there are going to be variants um, indefinitely, perhaps. Um, so this has to go away. You would think, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, and it is actually you know, a serious problem in places where uh, vaccination rates are negligible. And I'm not talking about the United States or Europe, um, but in uh, Asia in particular, <clears throat> a worrying sign we got today from or yesterday from North Korea, which said it had its first case of COVID ever um, late last week. And then subsequently this week, it has become incredibly endemic. To, from the North Korean information ministry that had several hundred thousand infected, multiple dead. It's a, a real crisis inside a country without any vaccines that is plagued by malnutrition, that doesn't have adequate hospital systems or medical care or public health apparatuses. And that's the sort of thing you can see being very destabilizing. So if you want to devote any mental energy to COVID, focus on North Korea. Don't focus on masking our children in camps. You can, you can still obsess over this thing if you want. Just direct your attention over there. Uh, so John will be back with us next week. Um, we miss him and we hope to see him again on Monday. Um, and in the interim, we hope that you have a great weekend and that you avoid the crazies and that they don't impose their political and cultural preferences on you too dramatically. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this weekend being behind me because it has been a stressful period over at my house with the, uh, in effort to to have a uh, to set up a party for my mother-in-law's 70th at my house, which has become a venue. Uh, so I'm looking oh, forward to my- Oh, it's got the party house. That's why we warned you when you moved into that nice house. I'm looking forward to my house no longer being a venue and back to being a house. So we'll give you a full update on that on Monday to the extent there is one. Um, but in the meantime, have a good weekend. We'll talk to you then for the absent John Podhoritz. Naomi, thank you very much for joining us. Christine and Abe, I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.